0: One region will be happy for this Jazz Nuggets series. It's definitely going to be the ones in the Rocky Mountains. Big numbers in that DMO. Mountain time becomes prime time. This is Roundball Ball Roundup on UtahJazz.com. I'm JP Chunga. David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, the podfather of podcasting about this very team. He gives you the geeky numbers coming up soon. Just want to give two bites, two quick takes, off of what we were able to see in the last couple of games and then dive into exactly what this matchup is, it's going to be a good one. Definitely one where if you're Denver, if you're handicapping it, they get the advantage. But this is a matchup that is very winnable for both teams. You know, we said it with Stephanie Reddy last time out. Take seven games of this? Of course, I love seven games of this. You see how entertaining Saturday was? 3-0 the season series for Denver but opportunities for Utah to exploit. We'll see how they do come playoff time. As far as what happened at the end of these seeding games, Jazz finished 4-4 four and four in the bubble, finished with the Jazz starters going plus 30 in 84 minutes together. There was concern. How would this team make up for Boyan Bogdanovich's production? What would happen? Well, it's clear that the starting units find It's where those bench guys get into a rhythm and how they do coming up. That's how it's going to determine. You see a guy like George Niang over the last three games goes 10 of 17 from three. Finally finds his shot from deep. Jordan Clarkson, 13 of 25 from three. Now, he played starters minutes when guys were put in and out of the lineup, especially against the Mavericks, to a lesser extent against San Antonio, the huge priority has to be that the young guys got NBA minutes, which will help them if they're called upon come this playoff series. If you have to go to Mione or Jarrell Brantley or Rajon Tucker, they've already played to this level. Now it jumps up when we come to the postseason. I'm sure Quinn Snyder has the confidence to go to these guys since he's already seen it in NBA-type scenarios. It was huge, huge, huge for bench guys to get into a rhythm. They need to get in that just to stay afloat once Rudy or Donovan gets off the floor. that's Both of those guys are in the top of the marquee when it comes to the Denver series. Rudy against Jokic. Donovan against Murray. And Denver has a Donovan stopper, and they think, when it comes to Torrey Craig, this is the matchup that they wanted, and I imagine this is the same matchup that the Jazz wanted. Gobert against Jokic. There's athleticism on both sides. Jokic is their de facto point guard. He runs their offense compared to Larry Bird. He has it. He has the juice. We'll see how well Rudy does with him as you have Utah's big going out to play on Joker. How far out will he go? And how much will those pick and rolls be exploited when it comes to the offensive end? And then for Donovan, him going up against Jamal Murray... They've got a Donovan stopper in, they think, with Torrey Craig. You saw how difficult it was for Donovan to get scoring on Saturday. He rounded into form when it came to that fourth and the overtimes, but Torrey Craig gave him problems. That's a good defensive matchup. Donovan's playmaking, how big of a step has he taken? You'll get all those questions answered in this playoff series. They'll have to depend on him. We've seen the playoff numbers with Donovan. Michael Porter Jr. against Royce O'Neal. Michael Porter Jr. has been the standout rookie from the bubble games. Finally getting confidence from Michael Malone. Being so good offensively. Having the touch to rise up from three-point range, be a dead-eye shooter, and have the athleticism to cut and go. He can turn this on a dime. Malone told ESPN's Doris Burke that he's the starting small forward. How does that impact the other guys on the roster. Where do you go with Barton? Where do you go with Gary Harris? This is a fascinating series and one that could go either way. Have you listened to Ingle's Insight?
1: I picked two options, and I actually picked Ally for both my options. I was like, that's what I want, so I'm going to for both. But yeah, just that I put thought into it and hadn't just kind of picked anything um just to pick something
0: well good that makes me really pleased that you are proud of that and you should be and i just think from a supporter's perspective and a fan's perspective of me sitting here watching from afar it's really it's even in the commentary of the games it's opened up some really really important talking points find it wherever podcasts are played itunes spotify google play and stitcher Let's hear from David, the Utah Jazz pod father. You know him from Locked Jazz. You know him from listening to it on the radio. If you have NBA League Audio Pass, which I do, and I love listening to the radio guys, you know David Locke. We start first where, frankly, he has bamboozled me time and time again by arriving to the arena and giving a salutation that I think is intended solely for me. Well, in a way it is. David. We start there, talking about his life, his career, how he got into this, and, of course, the Jazz Nuggets series. But he's enjoyed these bubble games where he tricks me.
1: know when it started i mean i know the logic behind it is that i always write down one person's name before every broadcast if that person is who i'm doing the broadcast to because the philosophy I mean, i'm talking to a syracuse guy so i shouldn't really be talking about like broadcast philosophy because you guys are the masters but um you know the philosophy is that if i'm broadcasting directly to one person every individual listener will feel that direct connection so if i'm broadcasting to Megan in Kearns or Scott in Hillside or, um, you know, whatever it might be, right? Like just find that person, you know, Bob at work at Chase Bank Um, and you try to find that individual connection, then you'll do it. So if I were to see that person for the first time in the day, how would I greet them? I would greet them with hello. How are you? And so that's how I started doing the broadcast to try to build that kind of one-on-one connection. Now, the backstory is that we're in Vivint Smart Home Arena all by our lonesomes with no one else around. And, And it has become a little bit of a joke between Ron Boone and I, that particularly in visiting arenas, but also in home arenas, that we'll kind of see somebody who's lingering near the broadcast or talking to a friend and I'll open the broadcast with a little extra vigor with a, hello. How are you? And usually can get someone to turn around. And by the time they turn around, I will say, Welcome to Vivint Smart Home Arena as the Utah Jazz get ready for the San Antonio Spurs. And so that, uh, that, you know, it's become kind of a fun game for us every now and then to get someone. And then that person's kind of with us for the broadcast, usually. And, um, uh, as is the case now you're the only one i have you i have nobody else that i can um lure into this and you have stopped falling for it so i don't know what to do and angie's too smart so we're out of luck
0: angie no chance that she was ever going to fall for it i fell for it twice after you told us that you were doing it which is uh, ridiculous
1: yeah i'm not going to judge you on that i appreciate it actually
0: i always think that you're you're going to catch me and now i'm hyper aware of the fact that well, I came in doing- the other
1: day and purposely didn't say hi to you so that it would seem like a natural hello, and didn't and didn't get you. We're pretty far away from each other too, though, so it's like it's a little strange. But we're the only we're ones so, in. Right, like I can't, like I I don't know who else. I like, I could try to get Kristen over on the other deck, but yeah. that would really be quite a, quite a large. So yeah, so but I still think it as you know I'm still doing it because it is the one-on-one connection right that's the that's the connection i'm trying to build is that individual listener um feel you know rob and alpine is listening and knows the broadcast is for him
0: how have you found broadcasting without fans
1: so i'll tell this story i've told this a few times now so i have a really fun awesome confident 15-year-old daughter who informed me the other day that if she ever complained as much as I have recently about anything that I would probably take her upstairs, sit her down and give her a lecture. So it's fine, JP. You're good. You're enjoying it. There are people, I mean, I'm calling games still. It's not what we all signed up for. It's not, but none of us have signed up for it. I'll give you a deeper thought. You want a deeper thought? I thought, um, this is really cool. I have a friend who does a bunch of executive training, And I think he, you know, he's really fascinating. And what he was saying is that everyone has their job and there's three parts of everyone's job. So there's the top, which is like the ecstasy, the part of your job you love more than anything. So for JP, I don't know if it's writing a perfect story or doing a perfect podcast, in which case you won't uh, have that today. Um, But whatever it is, there's like for me, you know really perfect preparation into a game plan and connecting with the coaches and the players and putting it all together and, and having that moment in a broadcast where you nail like that's probably mine um you know being a part of something and traveling with a group is another part of mine like everyone has the ecstasy, salespeople. it's probably the thrill of the deal but it's the relationship making and then we have the job which is what we all enjoy and it's the middle but it's not the ecstasy and then the bottom is we all have the job tax right so whatever the job tax is you you've got to deal with it you got to call every tuesday or you got something else what covid has done to people unfortunately is for the most part eliminated the ecstasy and greatly increased the job tax and so everyone is like stuck in this job that they used to love that's been altered that they still like but the job tax is so much bigger and the uh, and the um ecstasy is probably not a part of our lives because it usually involves togetherness and travel and be in doing things as groups um and so i think everyone's dealing with some adjustment of where they're you know how their jobs lie lay out and how they look right now and i'm i've been no different but at the end of the day it's still calling an nba game and being connected to to you know rob and, and alpine again and um and trying to feel that and um i i I think I've gotten more comfortable with it each game. It's it's not um, it's not easy to do. It's it's not easy to do to the level that I would like my play by play to sound like.
0: Well, it's so different for uh, Rudy. Just take the first game where he's shooting free throws. He's usually going to expect at least some noise when he's at the free throw line, and there's some pressure added to it. Pressure is it's a little artificial right now. Even that Saturday game against the Nuggets. How do you think it's affected just the team in the fact that they don't have a crowd to bounce off of as well?
1: So statistically, and I've got to talk to, um, the brilliant Kevin Pelton today about some of this, I am finding it statistically incredible how close everything is. Mm -hmm. So like, here's an example. Okay. If you take the median team in the and they're going to, and the median team's going to be a little bit better now because we got rid of bad teams right so we got rid of the worst teams but if you take like the 15th team in the nba on a catch and shoot three in the end in the nba so we're getting pretty granular here, right but like um you know it's 30 i think it was 37 percent um if you take the median if you take the median team in the bubble over the last eight games it's like 38.5 so it's like oh well they're actually shooting better in a controlled environment but then you actually dig into it. If you just took the 11th team in the league, it's 38.3. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's stunning how similar – the only number that's really different is the foul number right now. Like, fouls are way up. Officials are are hearing more, seeing more, calling more. Um, but you have to kind of calculate for the fact that the teams are better. Um, I haven't looked at – you bring up an interesting idea. Um, I did have someone tell me when the whole thing started – that they thought that some guys could shoot 80% of the free throw, bad free throw shooters or 62% free throw shooters could suddenly start shooting 80% at the line. I thought that was an interesting comment that, that the 62% free throw shooter is missing as much because they're concerned about the thought or, you know, what might happen. Or um, And then I, you know, there are players we've seen take a three. And the fact that there's no fear that the crowd might Ooh and on ah air ball, I think has allowed a few people to pull a trigger that they wouldn't pull otherwise. Now in the playoffs, we'll see.
0: Is this your dream? This is a control environment for all like basketball analytics.
1: Be, this should week. be good basketball analytic numbers. Shouldn't it?
0: It should. These are amazing. You
1: know, free throw shootings way up anyway in the league. Right? Like, I think that's like, I think that's, you know, remember the old, I remember when they used to make free throws, like, okay, well, that's argument gone. Cause um, free-throw shooting in the NBA is at 79%. Free-throw shooting in the bubble, the median is – eight. the 11th team in the bubble is at
0: 80%. Wow.
1: 80% is a really high number for average free-throw shooting. I think the Phoenix Suns uh, yesterday eclipsed the Boston Celtics as the greatest free-throw shooting team in the history of the NBA. That's amazing. 90% in the bubble at the free-throw line. They can take that
0: as they're going fishing.
1: Well, yeah, but – When you hear Monty Williams, they've changed how people think of them. It's true. Probably true, actually.
0: Looking at the series, you touched on it yesterday when we talked about how the narrative is that Jokic has taken it to Rudy Gobert. But when you looked at the numbers, Rudy's done pretty well when it comes to that matchup. That'll be a huge key, just how Rudy has to deal with a guy who gets compared to Larry Bird and and essentially is, is their point guard as their center. So, there's so many
1: things right there to talk about. So, let's go with the last one first, JP. So, touches. Amount of times a player touches the ball in the NBA. I mean, Chris Paul, James Harden, Trey Young. Like, who are you choosing as the number one guy with the most touches in the NBA? Like, right, it has to be a point guard, doesn't it, JP? Well, you would think. It's Nikola Jokic. So Jokic has the most touches of any player in the NBA. Like that to me is incredible. And then part two, they have B Ball Index has an interesting stat on actually the percentage. It makes it makes sense actually. This is a kind of a better stat: the percentage of time you have the ball for your team. And Jokic is at 23% of the time. And that is the number one player in the entire NBA for the amount of time, you know, player has the ball. Um, or amount of touches he has first team, 23%. Like that's that's incredible. Um and he is, I think Larry Bird is a pretty close cop. Like he's a seven foot-one Larry Bird playing point guard. And it gets really, there's a lot of X's and O's part about it that makes it really difficult. The most of which is if their primary game is a handoff game, and it's usually at the top of the key or a step or two behind the free throw line. If you're seven footers out there, it means everything behind him is just a slashing backdoor cut to the basket. And it's also why they're such a good offensive rebounding team because the other team's best rebounder is out at 15 or 18 feet guarding Jokic.
0: How do you see that matchup for Rudy, though?
1: So, the big one for what well, he's got to stay out of foul trouble. So, the note you made you mentioned at the beginning that we talked about yesterday is the fact that. Uh, while Jokic and Gobert have both been on the floor in this series, the Jazz are actually ahead of the Nuggets, despite the fact that the Jazz are 0-3 this season and lost by, what, a combined 12 or so points? And we're plus, depending how you count free throws, either three or six when Jokic and Gobert are on the floor together. So the key there is, first thing, is that Rudy can't get in foul trouble because when Rudy gets in foul trouble, then Jokic just annihilates people. I think in, like, the 13 minutes in which he has been on the floor and and rudy is not we're minus 15 and he's four for four with like eight assists it's like oh oops um so that i think is the big thing the other thing is what may be most important and how is it that jokic has 30 points 21 rebounds and 10 assists in a game and has 28 points 10 rebounds and four assists in another game and we're sitting here trying to tell you that rudy's played him well is because rudy's single covering him And it means that nobody else is getting free for anything else. So the assist number being down on Jokic is probably as important as anything else um, for the Jazz because it means he's not conducting in quite the same fashion that he would like to uh, in in his incredible passing ability as well.
0: Jokic had a slow start to the game last time against the double overtime game. And on the broadcast, at least on TNT, when I was rewatching it just before we got on this call, Chuck highlighted that Rudy... Is more athletic than Jokic. Do you buy that?
1: Sure, if it's a hundred percent, and then, but I'm not certain. I buy how relevant that is.
0: Highlighting how he, that athleticism, maybe it's not to the level of AD where Anthony Davis goes off for forty, but he can handle and control the action with with Jokic.
1: You know, I think Rudy, he shoots 53% when Rudy's on the floor this year. He shoots about seven percentage points lower um, at the rim that he does when Rudy's, you know, when he's going up just his season average, speaking of Jokic. Um, so I think Rudy certainly is bothering him with that length and athleticism. Um, Jokic has, I think, evolved. He was really poor against the Jazz in the last two years. Not um, not all of which, by the way, were against uh, Rudy. We used to have Faves guard him a lot. Um, but he's evolved uh, one thing he used to try to take that mid-range jump shot over the top of Rudy a lot and it never was very good and if you noticed the other night he bumped and backed and worked him into the paint used his size and his brilliant footwork uh to to get going I, I don't I don't I think the most difficult thing for Rudy's gonna be Rudy can't control you Jokic. she's too good the best players in the league get get their stuff and can Rudy not get frustrated in the midst of that and realize that part of his value is that he's not allowing anyone else to get going and that there's no other rhythm. And maybe, you know, their whole offensive rating as a whole is down. Um, Those are really hard things when you're in the midst of it to see that. Uh, And so I think it'll be interesting to see if Rudy can, can handle that aspect of things that they're going at him. They're working him uh, and see what's going. The other thing is, you know, what creative defenses are out there to deal with their high late game handoff, what they run all the time. They ran at about, 16 straight times against us in the double overtime game. And we just did not get any stops on it. We got to figure out how to slow that play down. It's awfully difficult to handle.
0: Well, and Jamal Murray, he's such a good shot maker and was so great down the stretch for them
1: last time out.
0: What do you make of another matchup that I really like? And I I think you have to key in on Torrey Craig really does give Donovan a, a bit of trouble, defended him well, had done it in the previous matchups as well tory craig against donovan what do you see from that
1: so in the first matchup they matched up uh and donovan was 0 for eight when guarded directly by craig in the second matchup donovan was three for ten for seven points and then the last time i think he was five of 13 for 11 points um just kind of guessing uh using a little guess because i had to do some backwards math on effective field goal percentage that's pretty incredible right so in three games this year when guarded by tory craig donovan's eight for 31 shooting uh we're gonna find out a lot about donovan like this is great like this is you know i think we forget donovan's in his third year um it's one of the things i really like for the jazz in this series is the lack of experience on both sides you know chris paul's in his 14th hardens in like his 10th or 11th Kawhi and paul are in their you know, ninth or 10th and LeBron's in his 73rd. And, you know, like everyone else that's like title contending and battling here have decades of experience in the NBA and Donovan's working on year three, Jamal Murray's working on year four. I think Jokic is working on year five. I think that's a nice advantage for the jazz that they don't actually play one of these teams that has all the experience. And Donovan has not been, you know, in the two series against Houston at least he has not been particularly efficient and so this is a you know now is another really tough matchup where someone's digging in on him and he's Donovan's worked incredibly hard with Johnny Bryant to alter his game and add things to his game and can he adjust and and make the next step that's that's what you know the there's a progression to this league and we have to let Donovan go through it and it's going to be interesting to see but you know Donovan's I'm not telling. You know, Donovan's perfectly aware he's a 39% shooter in the playoffs with a 29% three, and it's got to be better than that. And it's going to be interesting to see if against a guy that probably his biggest defense and nemesis is his matchup. Let's see what he can do.
0: What do you think that offers in lineup decisions for Mike Malone with
1: crazy, isn't
0: it? Harris Barton that he has to choose. What what are we going to do when it comes to to actually having somebody out who can defend Donovan, but is it the best matchup to put out there?
1: And Michael Porter Jr. has to play, yeah. right?
0: Well, and he told Doris Burke he's
1: their starting small forward. He he did have 23 and 11 against us. They have ability to do kind of same things we were able to do with our roster where it all trickles down a little bit. So Plumley played 16 minutes against us the other night. Do you slide Grant to the center instead to give him more minutes? And then by sliding Grant to the center, you're able to slide you know, Torrey Craig to the four and Will Barton and Gary Harris can get minutes in that way. Um, but if you're going to split your minutes at center between Jokic and Plumlee and Millsap and Grant at the four and Porter at the three and Craig is your two and Jamal Murray and Morris are your ones, then you've only got like 14, 16 minutes to decide what you're doing with Harris and Barton. And both those guys want to play more than that. Now I, I, I did a conversation with uh locked on nuggets host, Adam Morris, modesty the other day and it was not um it's not entirely clear what what they're going to do um so we'll see um you know they're not playing today the nuggets do play today they're not playing today um I think they're even resting um Michael Porter Jr today uh so I I don't I don't know how they're going to to play this uh with Harrison and Barton but I do think it's interesting and worth watching
0: Porter Jr. was a huge recruit when he came out of high school. What has locked in for him that Mike Malone has confidence enough to put him into the starting lineup now that he's become a, a dependable scorer?
1: Well, I mean, he's was the number one recruit in the country, right? Yeah. So he's obviously crazy skilled. Um, and he didn't play for a long time. And I think Malone's stubborn in what he'll you know accept and not accept. And so it's taken some time, but he's clearly... He's, you know, he's a bona fide going to be star and at 6'10". if he suddenly were to take, you know, I think he's got a chance of being able to take, you know, eight or nine threes a game because his shooting window is so high. Uh, and, and he's a 41% catch and shoot guy. Like, I, I, he could he could be a real offensive star. It'll be interesting to see how often do we shoot at him in the pick and roll. How much do we try to make him play defense? He can Velcro on picks a little bit. Joe Ingles suddenly had, you know, if he's guarding Joe Ingles... Um, they might try to hide him on Royce O'Neal, but then you got Paul Millsap in pick and roll. The Jazz strength here is the Jazz have three different guys that can run a pick and roll in Mitchell, Conley, and Ingles. And so if Donovan's being hassled by Torrey Craig, then Jamal Murray, who's not known as a great defensive player, Derek White torched him pretty good in the playoffs last year. You know, Mike Conley suddenly is playing off the pick and roll a whole lot. And Joe Ingles is suddenly playing off the pick and roll. Um, And maybe Donovan doesn't have that same burden until – he needs it later or he doesn't have that same matchup. And um, that's the beauty of what the Jazz have built and the and the Jazz great advantage here. And I think you'll see Michael Porter Jr. have to play an awful lot of defense in this series if they're going to leave him out there for 30 minutes a night.
0: Would this be the best matchup, do you think, for the Jazz if they were to go in the
1: playoffs? That's hard to say because I don't want to be disrespectful. to Den- I think Denver's been – probably is the team that has the like disrespect gripe you know they were the two seed in the west last year and they are the three seed in the west this year and they are they ever in the conversation right like we talk about houston all the time they've had a better record than houston both times we talk about like i I feel like denver actually is the one who could play the disrespect card a little bit um and so i don't want to i don't want to play in it i think they deserve credit i mean they're 19 and 16 when they trail at the half to me that's an incredible number about that tells you kind of about their fortitude and who they are and their resilience. Um, so I. now with that said, um, you know, we have not done well against Houston and we have not stopped them this year. We we really have struggled to stop Houston all year long. Um, and we have, so we, we struggle with switching defense. We've gotten better, but I mean, it would, th- there's an argument we didn't want to see Houston. You'd like to see Denver. The reason, the reason I think that you, you are interested, if you're a jazz fan that you should have, Uh, positive vibes about this series. And And again, I don't mean this in any disrespect to Denver. One is that experience thing I just talked about. Like, you would have been at a really significant experience disadvantage in every other series. And two, in the game January 30th, the Jazz got 37 threes off. In the game February 5th, the Jazz got 39 threes off, including 19 corner threes. And then, obviously, it was double overtime, but we took 55 threes that night. So we'll be the way we're going to beat anyone is with shooting. We have f- six or seven guys that are over 40% on our uh catch and shoot threes. And that's how we're going to win. You overshift your defense. We swing the ball. We find an advantage. We get it out to a catch and shoot shooter and we let it fly. And we, you know, we make shots, we win. That's how we're going to beat you. We're not an elite, elite level defensive team anymore. So we're, we're going to win offensively and hopefully have a decent defensive game. And Denver probably allows us to get those looks more than other opponents.
0: Where'd you get your broadcasting start?
1: Oh gosh. Um, Either when I was like eight years old and played all-star baseball, that little spinner game, you're too young for this JP, but we used to have games that were on boards um, instead of screens. It's a really crazy concept. Yeah. you're supposed to be laughing Jake. did
0: you play outdoors too what are you doing no, what, I, what are you I talking was, about
1: i was an only child so i would play outdoors and um and i would announce the game to myself by the way um when i was a young kid so yeah we actually played outdoors we like we and we we were creatively outdoors with games too in my generation um because you know every somehow the world is always making progress and every generation older generation was better figure that one out figure that riddle out um So, yeah. So I used to just I mean, literally, I announced every game I played Uh, a buddy and I used to in 1980. So we were probably, you know, I was 10. um, We both got computers and we would like write newsletters about our teams. Like I used to play the Montreal Expos in Status Pro Baseball and I would play like every game, keep the scorebook and announce the game. And then I would write like the new the newspaper article after the game. And I would do post-game shows too, just to make sure it was complete. We'd have pre-game shows and ha- post-game shows and interview. I interviewed Babe Ruth numerous times. Um, so to some extent, I got my broadcast start when I was, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. This is this is like, I always joke that like um, another concept that you might not know about, but in the old days, cable used to come into your house and you could split it. Um which was illegal, but if you were pre-puberty and screaming and yelling every time you watched a sporting event because you were trying to call the game at a high-pitched screeching sound, it was interesting how an illegal venture like splitting cable to put a television in your room so that your parents no longer had to hear your prepubescent screeching high-pitched sounds suddenly seemed like the right choice. So I had a TV in my room as a kid, and I would just announce every game. Um, from there, I got my start at Occidental College. We, My buddy and I, Mark Teitelman, who is now a Sports Emmy Award-winning producer, won the Sports Emmy for the Women's World Cup many years ago, is a, a football producer for CBS Football Last I Checked, was um, and has won a bunch of film awards, so he was way more talented than I am. Uh, he and I started uh, – Tiger Sports Radio, and we would announce the football games and um, the basketball games and some of the baseball games at our small Division Three school. Um, from there, I my first you know real job with some good stories in between was at a station called 106.5 The Score uh, in Salt Lake City. Uh, Barry King was starting kind of the first sports station, and I was teaching skiing, because and I would finish my shift skiing and come sit in the lobby every day just sit there because that was just annoying. And it was just like that guy's here again. He's in the lobby. He wants a job. And eventually that got me one. They gave me Sunday night at like seven o'clock at night to start, which in Utah is probably not a big listening time.
0: People are driving around though.
1: No, they're mostly having their Sunday dinner with their family and not listening to the radio. (laughs) I think that was the intention at least.
0: Well, I'm sure with no listeners, at least, you were working solo. You were on the tightrope and you had to develop something out of nothing. You're not going to get callers to fill in the the
1: time for you. And our callers weren't on delay. So often when we did get a caller, we actually shouldn't have gotten the caller, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um. So there was a guy by the name of Barry Jepson. I wonder where he is. I kind of run into him a few times. I've probably done a... And he somehow got the poor job of uh, having to um, deal with me, um, and he was he kind of sat in there and semi co-hosted and had to listen to me. And I, I'm sure I, I'm sure I gave him about three words. Right, I had, was 22, probably thought I knew the, everything as you're supposed to at 22. Yeah, I, I feel I'm sorry, Barry. Sorry, sorry about that. Make amends with him. I don't know where he is. So if he, someone knows him, tell him, I say, hi, he was a great, he actually, I mean, more importantly, he was a, um, I, he was incredibly nice to me. I think he, you know, I was 22 and aimless and I mean, I had a direction of where I was going. I just didn't know how I was getting it. He was incredibly good person to me, maybe more than anything else.
0: How did you end up on jazz postgame?
1: I've been 96. I came back from vacation and the front page of the paper is jazz kissing 570 goodbye. So I worked for a station, Kissin' 570 at the time, and the Jazz were switching stations. Um, a man by the name of Scott Mahalik, who might be one of the most genius bas- uh, radio people I've had, I, I think, he, you know, I really think he's one of the radio geniuses in the world, um, was the time the general manager of the station the Jazz were moving to. I was 25, um, and he called me and had me into the office and was like, we'd like to offer you the program director job. and we're going to build a brand new sports radio station and and you're going to build it. And, um, I was 25. Um, I had been in a a negotiation where I was so naive, um, that I thought that this guy, Pat Reedy was being honest. Um, I realized he wasn't, or at least, I mean, maybe that's not the right way to say it. He wasn't not being honest. He was just trying to take me for as little money as possible. Um, I thought that's actually what you earned. And so I actually had started applying to graduate school because I was like, well, if Like, if this is what you earn in radio, I'm going to have to do something else. Um, And so then he offered me this job. And then I was really confused because I knew I wasn't qualified for that job. So I turned it down. So now I like was a total mess. I said no to that job. I was in a negotiation where I wasn't going to stay because they weren't offering me any money. I was like, and he, uh, this guy, Scott Mahal calls me back three days later says get back in my office. And uh, I was like, I am not, well, he's like, why did you just turn that job down? And I'm like, I'm 25, like I'm barely figuring out my own life. Like I barely do a good enough show every day. I cannot be like running a radio station. What are you, you're insane. I turn this down because you are making a terrible mistake and there's no way that I'm qualified for this. And he just sternly, he's a big man, sternly looked across the table and said, I hire talent and give you the experience. And I was like, all right, let's go. So, Kevin Graham, who uh, is kind of a Utah longtime legend, uh, and then uh, a 16 year old intern named Ryan Hatch, who is now head of all radio for Bonneville and Phoenix. And I, at the time, I lived up the top of Big Cottonwood Canyon because despite the fact that I'll never shut up talking, and um, I'm actually probably a recluse at heart. Um, and we locked ourselves into our my cabin up at 11 miles from the closest streetlight for four days at big cottonwood Canyon and built 1320 K fan. It was kind of an awesome experience. Kevin's now been named one of the five best programmers in the country. Ryan's now one of the leaders of Bonneville's whole programming. Uh, I think that I learned an early lesson in life. Surround yourself with people way more talented than you are.
0: What was your response when Carl would get mad at you for something that you said on the post game show?
1: Oh, I mean, we had a big blow but at the end. It was too bad. we since talked a million times um i've always had the same feeling on this and i always think this is what default separates people i always love watching young broadcasters and like watch this happen to them and you then know right afterwards like oh they either have they're gonna make it or they're not like i've watched multiples where like oh they're they're not gonna make it so whatever you say on the air you better be able to say to them and if i say it on the air i'm willing to say to them i mean i had it like, I've had a funny one this year where George D. Yang loves to jump on every time I do an Instagram live, and I was talking about him, and I just kind of kept going. Like, like you know, like I, I, like I said this, and we were talking about George's defense, and someone had asked me, like, is his defense that bad? And I said, I, I actually don't know if his defense is that bad. What I do know is that the entire league has decided that his defense is not very good, so that the minute he checks into a game, immediately people are um, going after him in their – and isolating him and the offensive players in this league are so great that if you're that guy that they're isolating, you're not getting a lot of stops. Now, if you actually go look at a bunch of stats on George, it's true. He's isolated the fifth most of any player in the NBA and he actually forces pretty bad shots. Like he, or they, they don't take great high percentage shots on him. So I think that's all he can do. I was in that conversation. He jumped on Like I would say that to George right now, like that's factual. That's the, so, and I probably wasn't as tactful at 26 as I am at whatever I am now. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I'm sure there was a level where, um, I didn't have the tact or might've had more ego, which is hard to believe. Um, and so it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't done as well. Do you
0: enjoy talk show as much as you enjoy play by play? No,
1: No, I've done that. Um, though the world's changing, maybe you go back, you know, I don't know. I've had some thoughts that as the world changes, like maybe that gets, that's becoming more interesting now because it's such a different piece, like... I'll enjoy it all. I've loved, I've had a, I've had a very fortunate run since I was 21 years old. I think I've loved every day of it What and whatever the skill and challenge was, um, whether it was running a radio station and branding it, whether it was building a podcast network, building, calling games. Um, there's no greater thrill than being in the building and feeling 19,000 people in a collective moment. There's, you know, that's, there's, there is nothing greater than that. Um, you know, in a really raw moment this year, I was on a, um, a kind of a business zoom call and they had me on and somehow we got to that and I started crying, like just start crying about how much, like the idea, that I don't know when we're doing that again. Right. Like that, that's actually the, that's the peak moment. And I don't know when that happens again, but that's, I think there's nothing, you know, and calling a game winners, like, come on, Like, there's nothing like it, but it's hard. Like, and you're scared to death every time that you missed it. And, but sometimes calling the play with 3.30 left in the fourth quarter when it's 92-92 is actually a bigger thrill because you're you're building to the crescendo, which might be that moment.
0: What was your feeling when you first sat in that chair as the voice of the jazz?
1: Oh, well, I mean, Hot Rod was my idol as a child, so, right? So, um, you know, I'd had another experience on it that I think was actually harder um when i did the radio for the sonics we played the jazz and i looked down the way and hot rod was doing the same thing i like i was doing the same thing as hot rod that night was actually harder for me than the night when i took over for hots because in the meantime i'd worked with hots for now two more years and hots was so great in the transition in our communication so the the night it wasn't and then the other one that's interesting is i start you start on a preseason game like I remember that the world thought I started on the first regular season game. Like there were reporters asking me questions and things like that. And to me, I was nine games into the season. Right. So it, so, but I'll never forget. Uh, I have another story. Sorry. I'll give you another one. I've hyperventilated on the air, like three times in my life. Um, one was Seattle. I looked down the way and hot rod was the other side and I like could not get my air. The other was when hot rods, tribute night they thought it'd be fun if we called the game together which was weird also because we were playing sacramento and hot rod didn't know who their players were and so hot rod was calling the jazz going one direction and i was calling the kings going the other direction that was it and then the night Hots died um i had a we were in denver and every single time i said jazz radio network to me I didn't know it at the time, but even though I'd done the job for a few years, I still thought of that as hot rods clearly in my mind, because I had gotten through, we found out hot rod had died. Like, I mean, we had an idea Ron had gone and seen him and, but we didn't, you know, we found out literally 30 minutes before tip off. So like, and literally had a little bit of this game of like, we didn't know when we could announce or not. So there wasn't any like time to like take it in and cry and take it, you know, and so I remember I got okay to announce it, we're on the air, I now I have to announce it and, and I'm a crier, so that's never a good scene. Um, I got through that and then I went to break and I started to say Utah Jazz Radio Network, I couldn't do it, I couldn't, I couldn't say it. Like it was, um, it was so clearly at that, every time I've ever said that in my life, that was hot rod. So those are my three hot rod experiences to answer your question, but that actual night you're talking about was not actually one of them in the sense that I just, kind of had already had it when I was doing the Sonics and saw him
0: well I remember when that happened I, I was in an airport flying back to Salt Lake from Syracuse and I got the news across the Twitter sphere about Hot Rod and and you just had the sinking feeling because I mean it's the same thing He was the guy that I, I watched every single day and it was not only him on the radio for me he, it was simulcast on Jazz at that point when I was watching and the way that he was able to talk so fast and and be so conversational explaining the game to a 10 year old i was just amazed at, at how he was able to do that for for every single listener
1: there are a few announcers everyone loves their hometown announcer and then there are a few that have a really special place in the city so vin scully teaching los angeles baseball um and you can go through the history there's just a few of them that are and hots is one of them hots role legitimatizing Utah because he was a big deal that he was here. He was a national voice. The fact that he was simulcast, um, all of those items uh, that he was the first and the longest this long running. All of those aspects made him uh, not only unique to our marketplace, but I think unique in the realm of announcers in the history of the business.
0: Where do you see the podcast going, broadcasting on the radio going now as we enter 2020, 2021 with the NBA and and what we've got?
1: Um, I don't know. I know um, I have a high desire to make our radio broadcast more interactive. I think we have to find a way to have radio um, somehow be impacting people whether it's on their devices or on a sc- another screen or some way which is which is a different concept like so now how are they listening um you know we need to lift our geo geofen- our, our archaic geofencing things to be able to reach more people and create that community. I think people are in desperate need of community right now and I think we need to find a way on radio to create that community and I think we can we have a little more freedom in our broadcast format to do it than TV um and so i that's that will be like the number one off-season goal i have is trying to figure out how we can do it i tried to get it implemented in too short a period of time here just we just didn't have enough time we just didn't there were too many other things going on so we hopefully we'll take his breath um that's the that's the biggest goal i would have is that somehow our our radio broadcast becomes a community on an of itself um in the sense like what did i talk what do we miss right we miss the eighteen thousand people crescendoing at the at the time well, we're not going to get eighteen thousand people in a chat room but are we going to be able to get you know a few thousand in a chat room or in some sort of facebook group or in some sort of sort of something which are interacting during a game and getting that community feel and and then we're interacting with them via the radio so then it's got a whole other element to it to stretch it and grow it I, that's a vision i have um podcasting is still really small 76% of paid audio listening is still being done on the radio. Um, Spotify is like 8% Podcast as a whole is Spotify music is like 8% Pandora is like 7% and podcasting as a whole is like 9%. The growth level for podcasting is still, um, really significant. And there's too many people out there that have no idea how to get one, which is a really huge mistake in the podcast industry on how they went about this. That is holding them back. Um, I don't know, I, you know, and what's next, right? There, we didn't, if we'd held this conversation 15 years ago, we didn't know what podcasting was. So what will be um, the next form? But I think we all have to think about community and we have to think about being uh, there for people when they want us, um, not when we can give it to them, but when they want us and we have to give it to them in a manner that makes them feel like they're a part of something. So that would be my thesis statement of that. And kind of that's what's driving all of my adventures.
0: Well, you yeah, have created a community, that's for sure. Locked On is, is huge, obviously with the jazz, but how it's extended to everywhere being so local and offering fans a way to, to hear about their favorite teams.
1: And and off that, we as a podcast network, this is separate, have the same thing that I was trying to do with the jazz radio. We can, as a network, have some opportunities. There's some unique things to the podcast network that are interesting. So you know, like, frankly, on, um, you could do this with Denver's person with their style with Katie or someone like that. Um, but like, you know, Adam Modis and I did a crossover podcast today on those are two people that have lived with their team for a whole year. You know what? I mean, I, no offense to Tim Legler and Charles Barkley, and, but that the, the analysis that you and, and Katie or I and, uh, Adam are giving are, are, are far, is far better, right? That's better service for the fans. I also think there's some really fun pre and post game things on national broadcasts, like so you could have a um two local people doing a twitch um after a tnt thursday night game that's giving a totally different perspective it's not as good as that tnt crew obviously because that's the greatest crew of all time but there's a lot um there's a lot of things it's all evolving we'll see it's fun that 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 stuff keeps me really engaged in and, and keeps keeps the brain working
0: you're the jazz pod father radio voice of the utah jazz david Locke. thank you so much
1: well, you're doing a great job i love the show i've mentioned it a lot of times i hope people know that like there's been so- all sorts of mentions on my part and it's and i'm a um i'm a fan of what you're doing you produce it really well you take a lot of time into it you certainly have uh um you've re- you know you you've put a lot of effort into it and bring it at a very very high level so that's